0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Charlie Sykes. Rather extraordinary moment at the United Nations yesterday where Vladimir Zelensky, who holds nothing back. I, I, I know that it's become, you know, same old, same old to talk about, you know, how powerful he is as a speaker and as a leader, but also as a truth teller, a blunt truth teller, a speaking truth to power figure. And he's speaking to the Security Council of the United Nations and basically suggesting that you guys are pretty worthless. I just read this quote. Where is the security that the Security Council needs to guarantee? It's not there, although there is a Security Council. So where is the peace? Where are the guarantees that the United Nations needs to guarantee? And then he goes there. He says, show how we can reform and work for peace. Otherwise, he says, you should dissolve yourself altogether if there is nothing you can do besides conversation. Wow. Uh, I do think this is one of those moments, although... I feel we've had so many of those in the past where the United Nations has to decide whether it's going to go the going to go the way of the League of Nations. You know, for you, you history nerds out there, the League of Nations really, you know, fell apart in the late 1930s when it failed to stand up to aggression. I believe I I think the trigger was really when they decided they were going to do nothing about Mussolini's invasion of of Ethiopia. And people said, "Okay, you guys are completely worthless. And they were completely worthless. So it does raise the question, what is the point of a United Nations that has Russia on the Human Rights Council and that sits and watches this kind of aggression, the ongoing war crimes and atrocities, and decides that it can't do anything about it? What is the point of the body? Well, there's so much to talk about today, and we are joined once again by our good friend Josh Kroschauer from The National Journal. Welcome back to the podcast, Josh. Hey, Charlie. Good to be back on the show. Well we have a lot to talk about uh, both internationally and domestically. Just sort of top of mind for me, I know that you have been uh, an observer of CPAC over the years, the the shift in the Conservative Political Action Committee, the which is really kind of, you know, again, it, it's been described as the Star Wars bar scene of the conservative movement, but it's a good indicator of where the right is going. They are going ahead with having their conference in Hungary. Next month, which I find extraordinary on so many different levels <laughs> I wanted to get your take on all of that, that CPAC, which used to be, I mean, you know, was founded on you no know, small government and liberty and everything. And they've decided that they're going to go celebrate Victor Orban, uh, Europe's number one pro Putin autocrat. And they're going there now in the midst of this war. Uh, just your, your thoughts about that choice.
1: Well, you know, Charlie, CPAC always didn't represent the electorate of the Republican Party, even in, in its heyday, even when it was it was more popular, more. I don't, I don't think it was ever mainstream per se, but when it when it had a little bit more of the Republican Party yeah. zeitgeist. But um, it, it's really fascinating to see how far off the deep end it's gone on on foreign policy. At the same time that this, and I would call it the Nat, what is it? They call themselves the NatCons, the National yeah. Conservatives this wing is less and less popular, even among Republicans in its views on Russia, Ukraine and its views on America's role in the world. Um, Yet you're seeing them meeting in Hungary and feeding the Orban who just got reelected as as leader of Hungary. But this is a very small group in terms of our elective politics of folks like, you know, JD Vance, a candidate for Senate in Ohio, Marjorie Taylor green, Tucker Carlson on Fox news, sarab amari among you know so-called intellectuals donald trump but yeah i mean you could argue trump is sort of the champion or at least the defender of some of these folks but in terms of the actual policy the actual substance you look at the polling charlie you've talked about it a lot yeah, on this right. show an overwhelming number of republicans uh, are not anti-anti-putin they're very much supportive of ukraine's effort to defend themselves against these horrors that russia has has caused uh, upon them And they don't entertain this sort of I don't care about what's going on in Ukraine point of view that J.D. Vance, most notably, has advocated on on the Senate campaign trail in in Ohio. Uh, You know, I think we'll have some some early tests, uh, Ohio Senate primaries coming up next month. So, you know, Vance has been struggling in, in that race. We'll see where it ends up ends up going but you know if if he can't win in ohio in a crowded republican primary with that message it's hard to see it translating anywhere else you've also got a blake masters who's a senate candidate in arizona right that's an august primary but these are true tests of whether this nat con message has any standing even within the republican party
0: i think that's a good point uh the, the point i made in my newsletter this morning though is that Obviously, it's become increasingly toxic for anyone to uh, rationalize or defend anything that Vladimir Putin is doing. People are backing off on all of that. You're not going to see Tucker Carlson say, I am rooting for Russia anymore. Even Tulsi Gabbard seems to think that this might be damaging her brand. I mean, who knew, you know, atrocities uh, on the evening news every night. Uh, so it, to a certain extent, they've become anti-anti-Putin um what I'm floating is the idea that they're kind of laundering their Putinism through Orban, that that Orban gives them the the autocratic vibe without the body count, without the genocide. Um, but it is interesting that we get the announcement that they're going there like a couple of days after he is reelected, and he lashes out at Vladimir Zelensky. He's made it very very clear where he stands on this war, and that's not uh, that hasn't caused them to rethink this. I also am just fascinated about uh, you know who's funding all of this because often on on the right, and I'm sure it's true to a certain extent on the left as well, you always have to follow the money. I mean, who's writing out the check for this? Who thought this was a a good idea? But to your point about the isolationist of, of the appeasers, I would say that they are a fringe in the Republican Party and all the polls that you've cited uh, would certainly document that, except for the fact that uh, the number one Vladimir Putin fan in the Republican Party, is the former president of the United States, who is still the leading candidate for president in 2024. And as long as Donald Trump is looming over the Republican Party, and as long as you have the entertainment wing of the Republican Party led by Tucker Carlson pushing these things, I don't think that you can completely write it off. What did you make of the fact that more than 60 Republicans voted against a pretty, I would say, anodyne, uh, non-binding resolution uh, supporting NATO. 63 Republicans voted against the resolution expressing support for NATO. Uh, that, that that seemed like a really large number to me.
1: Yeah, I was surprised that some of the, the folks that were among the, the, the 60 or so people, um, folks that I would not consider part of the the right wing or the, or the NatCon crowd, so to speak. But um, I, we always say on this, I always say on this podcast, Twitter isn't real life. <laughs> CPAC isn't real life. And, you know, I've true. written a lot about true, how true. even Trump's endorsement We have a bunch of huge primaries coming up in the Republican Party in May. And, you know, to the Trump factor, clearly Republicans still, like Trump, support Trump and entertain and indulge his election conspiracy theories. But he may, as I've written, go 0 for 6 or or, or lose the vast majority of races in which he's endorsed favored candidates from the, the Georgia governor's race, where he's backed David Perdue against Governor Kemp. You've got an Idaho governor's race where he endorsed Mm -hmm. uh, someone who spoke at a white nationalist conference this year. Uh, She's losing badly in in that primary, according to the polling I've seen. You have the Alabama Senate primary, where his MAGA candidate, Mo Brooks, uh, did so poorly in the polls that he actually, Trump withdrew his endorsement to save face. So I, I agree with you, Charlie, that obviously Trump holds a lot of sway within the Republican party. But, but a lot of folks, I, I would also caution not to overstate his impact, not to overstate his influence. Okay. If his candidates end up losing the vast majority of races that they're in, his endorsed candidates in, in the month of May, it may show an, an early, indi- maybe an early indication that even though he still carries a lot of sway within the party, his word is not the final word when it comes to Republican Party
0: candidates. This is a very, very interesting question. And I was thinking about it before the podcast today, because uh, you you are right. He could, um, you know, he could go 0 for 6 in May. He's likely to have a very, very bad primary. Um, And then, of course, there's the danger of overinterpreting all of that. Um, Our colleague Sarah Longwell tweeted out this morning, look, uh, you know, don't misread that as thinking that he's still not the dominant uh, uh, factor in the party, especially when you think about what uh, a presidential primary might look like in 2024, even if Donald Trump is down to 40 percent approval rating, you can you can run the table with 40 percent of the Republican primary vote. So, give me your take on all of that, because I, I I I do think that there there is the danger of reading too much into it. On the other hand, it certainly is a counter indicator to those of us who. You know, continue to think that uh, this is, you know, lock, stock, and barrel Donald Trump's party. If his endorsement does not carry that much cloud, so I again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I will admit, I'm, I'm wrestling with with how much to read into those results. Um, You, you think, you think that they are 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 likely to be somewhat consequential.
1: I I do, though. I, my my good friend Tim Alberta at the Atlantic, was on your show a couple months ago, and he had one of the great lines, which I've written about in my column because I think it's such a good uh, point. He he described what's going on in the Republican Party as sort of a merger between the Trump wing and the establishment. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of cases, like in Georgia, Trump endorsed Herschel Walker and encouraged him to run. This is someone who has been uh, accused credibly of, of domestic abuse, has written about his his issues in the past. Um, usually that would be dis- disqualifying for any candidate. We saw Eric Greitens having to deal with similar issues, and, and it's a big problem. Uh, but but because Trump endorsed Walker and because his endorsement still does mean a lot, the establishment, the McConnell wing of the party, ended up uh, eventually relenting and going along with Herschel Walker's candidacy in, in, in Georgia. And looks, there are a lot of Republicans privately who, despite this great environment that Republicans are running in, are still panicked that Walker will not be a good candidate. and might cost them and yet another Senate seat in, in Georgia, um, Nevada, you've got Adam Laxalt, who mm-hmm. um, was the former uh, state attorney general, Republican. who entertained a lot of these election denialism, you know, schemes uh, during the post 2020 period. And I believe is backed by Trump and also has gotten support from the establishment. So you are seeing this sort of merger, if you will. They're, 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 we're now moving the bar, the Overton window, if you will, even further to the right. And there's been an acceptance of some of the more. Uh, problematic elements of of Trump and, and his, his behavior, but I, I do think that that is where the vast majority of Republican candidates are. They're willing to you know indulge Trump. They're willing to take the good parts as they see it of his populist approach to. The governance while trying to distance themselves from the russia stuff and from the election denialism and that 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 is the merger that we're seeing where you're not going to see any there's no such thing as like the very few if any anti-trump republicans that they don't they just don't right. exist uh, to, in, in elective office much anymore fred upton one of the most respected right. republicans uh, from michigan retired because he
0: trump endorsed his opponent and it made it made a big difference yeah. I mean, he he voted for I- impeachment. It seems that one of the sweet spots that some Republicans are looking for is not necessarily to be endorsed by Trump, but just to make sure that you are not denounced by Trump. So, um, you know, I was talking to some people who were involved in some campaigns and they were saying that their their main hope was just to prevent an endorsement of any kind, that they didn't care whether he supported them, but he just didn't want You know, one of these things going out that they were a rhino. Okay, speaking of endorsements, though, Sarah Palin, the return of Sarah Palin, uh, you have some very interesting analysis of Alaska politics. But before we get to that, because, okay, I mean, it's going to get a little wonky, just like, I mean, a little warning here. Sarah Palin emerging from really complete obscurity. I mean, she went from being the sort of the ultimate rock star of the right, uh, you know, the precursor of Donald Trump to. Pretty much exiled during the Trump years. Too crazy even for MAGAverse. And now she's back uh, running for this open congressional seat in Alaska. And just to remind people, um, Alaska has one congressional seat, which means it is a statewide election. So she could have run for United States Senate statewide or run for this congressional seat. She's chosen to run for the congressional seat. There are more than fifty candidates in that race. So Josh, what give me your your sense of, you know, it's like you know, time is a flat circle and we're back to Palinism.
1: Well, you make this hugely important point, Charlie, that Sarah Palin was really the precursor to Donald Trump. Yeah. That her she captured the enthusiasm of the populist wing of the Republican Party in a way that foreshadowed Trump's rise just just about five, six years later. And um, I, I remember covering Palin when I was a reporter at Politico and the, the traffic, the engagement with, with any stories involving her were, were, were just like written about Trump. and it was just, you know, like like uh, crack cocaine to, to folks who uh, are, are in the industry. So Palin coming back almost what a decade or more later to run for the House, uh, is it, sort of a, a full circle moment. Um, what's interesting though, and, and this is what I wrote about in my column, Today is Alaska just changed its election rules. I'm surprised Trump hasn't talked about stealing the election in Alaska from Sarah Palin and, and his opponent he endorsed against Lisa Murkowski because yeah. they actually changed the rules last year to incentivize moderates, to incentivize more mainstream candidates and disincentivize hard right, hard left candidates from succeeding in primaries. So Sarah Palin, you know, she has a decent chance to be the next congressman in Alaska, but She's not going to have a primary where she wins the nomination. She's going to have to go on this ballot with 48 other candidates. You pick the top four vote getters, end up moving on to a general election where Democrats, independents, everyone can vote, not just Republicans. So she's going to have to win over some independents and maybe even some Democratic votes to prevail in in a general election ballot with three other challengers not very easy. And you can't, even in Alaska, which is a pretty Republican state, you're not going to be able to do it just by winning over Trump voters.
0: Okay. I'm pretty wonky on this stuff, but I need, I need a refresher course in ranked choice voting. So you tell me whether that I have this right. Okay. I mean, how ranked choice voting works and I have your piece in front of me. Okay. So, so basically all the candidates compete in a single primary, right? Democrats and Republicans, right? Everybody with the top four moving to the general election. Right. So so it's possible there will be four Republicans. It'd be possible that there would be two and two. Right. Or three and one. That's right. Okay. So in the general election, then voters don't vote for one candidate. They actually rank their choices in order from one to four with the lowest ranked candidate in each round getting dropped until one candidate wins the majority of the vote. So you have to win the majority of the vote. Am I right so far? That's right, Charlie. Okay, so candidates. And then as you just made this point in in a ranked choice voting environment, and this is like a whole different world for most of us, they're incentivized to build a broad coalition, which is what makes this so interesting, because it is the exact opposite of the Trump strategy of just ginning up a certain portion in the primary base. So without ranked choice voting, the most rabid person in the primary gets the primary. And if you're in a state like Alaska, it's probably you know, close to tantamount to victory. So this is in many ways kind of a dream scenario for election reformers because it is the opposite of the hyper-tribalization we see with primary-centric elections. In this election, in ranked choice voting environments, you really do need, as you just said, this broad coalition. So the old system would have almost guaranteed a Palin victory. The new system makes it uh, much more complicated. That's exactly right, Charlie. And by the way, just this week,
1: Senator Murkowski, who's facing this this tough
0: mm-hmm. primary
1: from a Trump-endorsed challenger, said she would be supporting Supreme Court Justice nominee Katanji Brown Jackson. That would not happen. If it wasn't for this ranked choice system, she she would have to appeal to the right, pander to the right if she was facing a, a traditional primary. But under this new system, she actually her political incentives go the other way and being bipartisan is a political asset. So that that's what changed this. Palin is not going to have this free ride that she probably would have otherwise had under the ranked choice system. It's what, by the way, empowered Glenn Youngkin in the Virginia Republican nominating Mm -hmm. process. It it helped Eric Adams get elected in New York City in the mayoral race as a more moderate candidate. So this is a very revolutionary
0: change in how we elect candidates. It is revolutionary. And I I, I feel like I'm I'm sort of, have been behind the curve on all of this. How did this happen in Alaska? I'm I'm assuming that the legislature is Republican, that the governor is Republican. So, I mean, how did it happen? I believe it was a referendum um, oh, on the ballot.
1: I, I, double, I, I have to double check that. But okay. um, it, 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 it definitely, a lot of these changes get made um, not by politicians, right? Okay. Who want to who preserve their power. It's usually done at the grassroots level. You're seeing a similar version of that. Um, it's not quite the same, but the redistricting the, the, of the state Supreme Courts that are right. undoing these gerrymanders in, 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 in states. Um, that is not politicians doing that. It, it's literally state Supreme Court justices who are not elected, who are, you know, have less skin in the game, so to speak, politically, are deciding that some of these maps are just so partisan, so so drawn in such a gerrymandered way that, that they're throwing them out and forcing uh, both sides to come to the table.
0: All right, well, well I, I want to talk about this is a perfect segue because you just mentioned Murkowski's vote in favor of uh, Ketanji Brown J- Jackson. Let's talk about um, the politics of the Supreme Court right after this. Okay. You know that it is almost summer here in Wisconsin and summer means cooking out, firing up the grill. And that means putting on the steaks and the burgers. And I cannot wait To grill the Omaha steaks that arrived recently in the mail, the beef tenderloin steaks, the ground beef burgers, the pork loin chops. This has been a family tradition for us for many years. I have family that comes over from France and they understand that it is summer in Wisconsin, summer in America when we are cooking the Omaha steaks on the grill. Omaha Steaks makes it easy to stock up on all of your favorites. Visit omahasteaks.com, enter bulwark into the search bar, and order the Omaha Steaks sampler today. Look, we have been giving this sampler as gifts to members of the family for years now, and I have yet to find anyone that is not absolutely delighted when this shows up. You will save more than 50% plus you will get 12 Omaha Steak Burgers free with your order. This package has it all, from the mouth-watering butcher-cut filet mignon to the delicious caramel apple tartlets. Every order is backed by their 100% satisfaction guarantee to deliver perfection in every single bite, every single time. Visit omahasteaks.com, type keyword bulwark in the search bar and order today. Look, there's a reason why Omaha Steaks has been the leader of gourmet steaks and food for more than a century. No one, and I mean no one, comes close to matching the flavor, tenderness, and value of Omaha Steaks. Fifth generation owned and operated, they invented meat delivery and are still the very best. You can trust Omaha Steaks to deliver quality worthy of their name. Visit OmahaSteaks.com keyword bulwark and order the Omaha Sampler today. Okay, we are back with uh, Josh Kraschauer from the National Journal. I, I think your point about Lisa Murkowski voting for uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson um, is, is interesting that, you know, he, 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 if it was not for ranked choice voting, she might've gone the other way. We, we just don't know. But give me your sense of the way that this has played out because, uh, you know, I, I think it was a foregone conclusion that she was going to be confirmed for the court, but it it, it feels as if, well, just give me your sense. I mean, you know, Tom Cotton goes to the floor of the United States Senate yesterday and implies that you know if if she had gone to uh, to the Nuremberg trial, she would have defended the Nazis because she had defended uh, some of these people accused of of terrorism. Um, it was an egregious cheap shot because, of course, that's what defense lawyers do. Um, but you know, Ted Cruz raising the whole question of being you no know, soft on 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 child porn. This this had a this give me your sense of of the politics of this nomination because it seemed it seemed a little bit different but but maybe maybe it's a continuation of where we've been going you know since Robert Bork or since Merrick Garland or whatever what is your take
1: so I think it's telling that the original hit from the right against uh, Judge Jackson was that she wasn't qualified that that her SAT Tucker Carlson raised publicly like where are her SAT scores Um, right and I thought from from the standard of just being qualified to sit on the Supreme Court, she did a tremendous job at the uh, at, her, at her hearings. She didn't fumble. She answered every question pretty crisply, and you know showed as much uh, detail as you will get from these types of Supreme Court hearings. Um, look, I think the changing standard of what a, of how senators look at these co- these confirmation votes no longer is about qualifications. No, it's about you know, do you agree with me? <laughs> do you, you know, the, 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 I think that's unfortunate. Lindsey Graham, for example, voted for uh, Judge Jackson on, on the circuit court. And Senator Graham has candidly and, and commendably said that that's his, that has been his standard. He's voted for He voted for most of Obama's Supreme Court nominees, if not all of them, because he believed that, you know, qualifications were the standard, not a, a litmus test for where you stand on certain ideological issues. Look, it's gotten more partisan since Kavanaugh or since before then you mentioned Bork but it's certainly gotten hyper partisan in the last you know five or six years where it was very rare to find much democratic support for any of Trump's very qualified Supreme Court nominees and and now Republicans are returning the favor you know simply the fact she got three at least three Republican senators to vote for her is a actually a sign of strength in, in these partisan times um but a lot of this like um you know I I felt like a lot of the rhetoric surrounding her sentencing of, of you know, predators, you know, child, child sex predators. Yeah, you know, you know, I think Holly and Cruz were trying for their Perry Mason moment. But, uh, you know, I don't think it had any legs politically. If anything, it's a larger indictment on the Democratic Party on law and order issues, but I didn't see any real vulnerability from jackson in terms of her qualifications to be on the supreme court
0: well i want to come back to that that the point you just made about the vulnerability on the crime issue but it, that in in some ways was i think overshadowed by this emphasis on the child porn and then you had marjorie taylor green who said the republican senators who would vote in favor of uh, kbj were pro pedophile I, I am just struck by this pivot you know how quickly so many people on the right have gone sort of, you know, QAnon adjacent uh, with you know child sex rings and pedophile, and that you are a groomer or you are a pedophile if you oppose the legislation like down, you know, the legislation in Florida. Your sense of this, because I look, I think that you know right now Republicans have the wind at their back when it comes to issues like crime in general on the border, you know, inflation. I'm not so sure this push, this really sort of, you know, hyper anti-gay rhetoric, uh, how does that play? Is, is that an overreach? What is your sense?
1: Well, I hate the, this, right? I mean, this this yeah. new era of politics where people just abuse and, and insult people uh, for political and personal disagreements. I, I just can't stand it personally. Now, look, I've written about the, the what, what Democrats call the don't say gay bill, which is a parental, you know, it's essentially a parental rights bill that prohibits, uh, you know, sexual orientation uh, instruction uh, gender identity instruction in Florida schools. If you look at the polling, it's overwhelmingly popular in the state of Florida and nationally. So they don't need to get into the the gutter with this, this language. It's right. it's a you know the, the lot the lot of the overreach speaks for itself on the left and how they've attacked the bill, misrepresented the bill. Um, it, it's broadly popular and and the, what it what it what it calls for. There may be some overreach. The language may not be the neatest language in the world, but it, it's the issues that it, it claims to advocate for uh, are very popular ones in Florida
0: and 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 beyond. And by the way that's what 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 you're saying is that that for the majority of voters they see this as a parental rights parental power piece of legislation rather than anti gay
1: yeah they they don't think that yeah. sexual orientation should be taught to kindergarten to third graders no, right. i mean it's a pretty pretty popular mantra um and that 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 that's the, the end, end all of mm-hmm. it now there there's an additional element to the bill that says In older grades, it has to be age-appropriate language, and that's where I think the language gets a little more fuzzy and a little more problematic. But um, the the meat of the bill, what what they're calling the don't say gay part of the bill, is simply preventing instruction in gender identity and sexual orientation to kindergartners, to to third graders, which... You know, I I don't know if things have changed that much since I was in school, but that never was taught in the first place. And I don't think it should be
0: taught. It, it's overwhelming a, a numbers of Americans don't, don't believe it should be taught. I agree with you. But what concerns me, though, is the vagueness of the legislation and then this this weird new trend in legislation to put bounties essentially on teachers heads, which is, you know, that, uh, you know, creating a cause of action so that, you know, some, you know, pan, to use Tim Miller's phrase panhandle, caring can file a lawsuit against the local teacher if uh, they say or do something that she thinks might be wrong. That just strikes me as as being dangerous. And of course I'm old enough to remember when conservatives were against excessive litigation, the litigation culture. Uh, so we'll have to see how that plays out.
1: Yeah, no, and and, and, and I don't think there are any bounty provisions in the Florida law, but they did change the language of the K to three instruction from Discuss, it was originally discussion, any discussion of, of these issues, and they changed the language to instruction. Yeah. So Correct. I think that made it a little safer, a little, a little more clear and helpful for, for legislative language purposes.
0: So I again I want to just to go back to something you mentioned, um, and and I had the same reaction, which was that Republicans didn't need to engage in the, you know, in the pedo grooming rhetoric because the polls would suggest that the whole issue of violent crime is working in their favor. It just strikes me that there's a constellation of issues that I, I, I don't think the Democrats have really figured out how to handle the border, inflation, and crime. You also mentioned, of course, you know, the whole parental empowerment issue. Do you agree with me, by the way, on, on that, 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 you're, that your sense is that those are, that the winds are blowing against the Democrats on those four issues? I do.
1: And, and what's very, God, as someone who follows politics, what's kind of frustrating is this is one issue where they, they are in control of their own destiny. As a political observer, as a political analyst, it, it's often frustrating to, to see a party acting against its own self-interest. And, and Democrats are kind of at the point now where they're like, "What? Well, what can we do? We, we, you know, there's nothing we can do on the economy or inflation. There's nothing we can do about the border um, at this late in the game. But when it comes to talking about these cultural hot-button issues—race, involving race, gender, uh, the crime issue, sentencing uh wisconsin you know in wisconsin the, the the senate nominee or i shouldn't say the nominee but the front runner for the democratic nomination for um, the senate in wisconsin has come out in against bail um uh, paid cash bail uh and, 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 and double down on that that is well out of the mainstream especially in a state like wisconsin where yes. the the awful crime at the at the waukesha parade is still yep. very very fresh in people's memories but they're they're choosing to do this on their own the the, the, the democratic party seems to always be months behind where the population, where the the public is, to the point where, you know, now they're saying we don't need masks in schools anymore. Now they're saying we want to fund the police. We don't want to defund the police. They should have said this a year ago. They should have said this more than a year ago. And they've waited so long until the polling was just screamingly obvious that their positions or that the progressive uh, part of their party's positions on these issues were so problematic. And now they're suffering the whirlwind and they're still having trouble moderating on a lot of these hot button issues.
0: OK, so see, so we, we sort of have a family discussion here at the at the bulwark about whether or not uh, the Democrats need to emphasize their centrist identity. And, there, you know, there are those who argue that, well, you know, the Biden administration has been very centrist in its governing. But that's not the way it is perceived among voters who will actually decide the outcome of this election, is it?
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's not the facts, I think, indicate that they've they've push to the left when the sweet spot was always in the middle and Biden campaigned as a as a moderate, whether it was the the scope of the initial stimulus, which, you know, Biden could have done in a more bipartisan manner and, and, and probably helped the, the inflationary uh, problem. <laughs> he probably could have reduced inflation by not spending so much early on on, on, co- on the COVID emergency funding and gotten some Republicans to, to support him on that. He didn't have to withdraw uh, haphazardly in Afghanistan, which caused a lot of political... Problems in terms of his administration's credibility and competence, um, and 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 look, a lot of these cultural issues. You, you you should be you shouldn't have to. It shouldn't take a year for you to give a State of the Union address calling to fund the police. But they've been scared of of their activists within the party that that actually don't want to fund the police more. They they are they have some very avant garde views on crime and policing, and, and the administration may not em- embrace those views. But they certainly have run scared. Uh, of those positions and don't want to alienate some pretty important elements within their own party
0: you know you mentioned this issue of uh of cash bail and 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 bail reform which is a very very hot issue in places like uh, san francisco and new york and apparently the leading candidate uh, democratic candidate for u.s senate in wisconsin uh, m.m mandela barnes has has embraced it uh this is one of those issues that uh, that is turning i think to be incredibly toxic for the democrats you actually have you don't want to talk about an undercover story uh, the 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 shocking recall of the San Francisco school board was was just a, again to use the word precursor again uh, a precursor to um, the recall of the very very progressive DA uh, there. Chesapeake. Yeah. If, 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 in fact he is recalled, it, it ought to be, you know, red flags all over the place that you can't, you can be, uh, too progressive even for San Francisco, but, but bail reform has become one of these, uh, these touchy issues. Uh, it's going to be a big issue here in Wisconsin. And if Mandela Barnes is the democratic nominee, I think it pretty much guarantees Ron Johnson will get another uh, six years. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, Democrats are saying, well, Joe Biden said that we want to refund the police, not defund the police, but he's only said it a few times and it doesn't counteract what's actually happening in real time in one city after another and the number of progressives who still don't make the connection between things like bail reform and the rise of violent crime in urban areas. And that is obviously a huge problem
1: yeah it's it's a huge problem and i think there was some denial after that san francisco recall of those three school board members yeah. and, and the, the the excuse was well democrats even supported the recall yeah. and this was about some local issues not not about the national issues of of parental rights and education and you know qualify, merit and qualifications to be in a magnet school but uh now even though Boudin isn't hasn't drawn the same level of democratic support for the recall there have been some new polls showing overwhelming support for his recall as well, because crime is on the rise in San Francisco, one of the most democratic cities in the entire country. You know, if Nancy Pelosi doesn't see this, if, if she, she sets her neck of the woods. If she doesn't see the political backlash that's emerging in her hometown among Democrats to some of these policies and some and some of these positions, you know they're in for a world of hurt unless they turn things around pretty fast.
0: And, and and they would have to turn around very fast. And of course, you have Eric Adams who over in New York, kind of raising his hand, saying, "Hey, I, you know, um, I'm, I'm the tough on crime Democrat. Um, I'm, I, you want to make me the face of tough on crime urban Democrats? I'm, I'm right here." And yet, I'm not sure that that is actually happening. So, you had a great piece breaking down the Democrats' strategy to hold on to the House, which, of course, I think it's a—it is hardly breaking news that that's going to be an incredible uphill fight. You noted that the uh, you know first shot was fired by the Democratic-aligned House Majority Pack, announced plans to spend 102 um, million dollars in advertising across 50 media markets nationwide. The Republican congressional committee is planning to target 72 Democratic-held districts, including 33 that Biden won by double digits. So, if you're looking over the landscape. You know, look, I think Republicans are likely to take over, but is is it a little bit of uh, irrational exuberance to think that they can target 72 Democratic-held districts, or is it that kind of? Behavior? Well,
1: yeah, that, that number is not. Yeah. They, they 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 put a lot of members that they're probably not going to be able to target on that list. So that, that, that's, that's definitely a large number, but I will say this, Charlie, that I've been covering elections since 2004. And this is the, based on the polling, based on how many races are in play relative to, you know, the top line numbers in these districts, this is the most favorable Republican environment I can imagine I, I've ever covered. And it's comparable to 2010. It's comparable to 2014, but uh, I know Mitch McConnell uh, was talking to Punchbowl News last week, and he said that he's never seen an internal poll showing Republicans up more than three points on the yeah, generic ballot that. at this point. Uh, he's seen polling in the last few weeks that show Republicans up 10 points um, on that generic ballot. So this this is, a I mean, we're, we're, we're seven, six, seven months out from the election. Things can change. But, you know, to make a parallel to like weather forecasting, we are in a category five hurricane watch where there, there could be a tidal wave.
0: Okay, so why is it all inflation? Is it a perception of Biden's weakness? What? Give me your sense of what is contributing to this. Is it a pro-Republican wave or is it an anti-Democratic wave?
1: It's much more of an anti-Democratic wave. We always see backlashes to the party in power. So the fundamentals would always always be in the Republican Party's favor, (laughs) but not to this extent. And what we're seeing is the economy not nearly not being... Nearly what what a lot of Democrats were hoping for out of the pandemic with inflation being the dominant issue and concern for so many Americans, combined with these cultural disconnects that we've been talking about, where, you know, Democrats are actively alienating, not just, you know, some, some traditional Republican voters, but even like non-white uh, working class Democratic voters who are much more culturally moderate on all these issues, crime in particular, uh, that's becoming a big issue in, in major cities. Uh, but those are issues where they've alienated actively some of their own voters, no less Republicans or independents. Um, and the, you know, the three factors I look at, and all of them are pointing pretty strongly towards the Republican Party right now. One is the independent vote. And If you look at the independents, Biden has an approval rating among independents in the low 30s. That, that's about as low as I've seen for any, any sitting president. It's, it's very comparable to where Donald Trump was. Um, in the run-up to his first midterm election, you've got a fired-up Republican base that we haven't seen in quite some time, um, eager to vote, eager to to vote for their own party on all these congressional races, and and maybe most importantly, Charlie, you have a very disillusioned Democratic electorate, um, which you know, you turnout always does dip off. It, it, it did for Trump in eighteen, it did for Obama in twenty ten, but unlike Obama and Trump, Biden is not a you know, cult of personality president. He doesn't inspire loyalty or passion from his supporters. So you're seeing an unusual degree of defection from younger voters in particular, Hmm. African-Americans to a similar extent, where like Biden won 90 plus percent of of African-American voters in the 2020 election. His approval rating among African-American voters in the last few polls I've seen are in the 60s. Huge drop off and and suggests that they may not be voting Republican, but they're probably not going to show up to support Democrats in the midterm elections, uh, the youth vote is a real problem, and this is why Democrats still do feel the need to appeal to their base. That the more progressive uh, voters on the younger side of the spectrum just aren't interested in Biden and interested in voting for for Democrats in the midterms. So you have, yeah, yeah, you have a perfect storm. Usually, even in a bad, even when Obama had a bad year in 2010, Democrats still showed up. I mean, they still had decent turnout. You may have really weak turnout or surprisingly low turnout um and if that holds it would be a very bad sign for Democrats.
0: so what is your diagnosis of of the joe biden presidency because he came in there was some good feeling his numbers were relatively stable for a while uh republicans were struggling it seems like a long time ago now um you know to to figure out how to attack him that's all changed what 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 happened to the biden presidency what what is your your I, I i'm struggling not to use the word autopsy but but your sense of of what happened why is biden right now so unpopular which raises the question of, of course what can he do to turn it around but let's start with with the first part of that question what's wrong yeah
1: so he failed to read his mandate he he got so excited after democrats thanks to trump by the way after after democrats won those two senate seats in georgia giving democrats uh, the senate majority and the house majority that he failed to realize that he was holding very narrow majorities and that so many people voted for him because he wasn't trump he was a pledge for a more normal kind of politics and he he, he achieved something i mean certainly it's been more normal compared to to trump but He immediately thought he was the next FDR or the next LBJ and, you know, had these unrealistic ambitions that were totally delusional, given the realities of where the the Senate and House were, given the fact that you still have a whole lot of moderate Democrats making up those majorities in both chambers. So he raised expectations, Charlie, so high that now he's getting blowback, not just from the from the middle but he's also pissing off the left because they were promised so many things that were unable to be achieved that now they're even more disappointed than they otherwise would have been. So, I mean, the, the obvious political strategy, and I wrote about this at the time, I'm not just Monday morning quarterback no, I remember
0: here,
1: What yeah. was to basically be the boring guy, be, be the guy who would restore normalcy, play to the middle. Y- you're not going to get the excitement from the base and you don't have the excitement. From the base, even now, but you would get some buy-in from the Mitt Romneys and the Susan Collinses of the world. You'd work towards appealing and, and appeasing Kirsten Cinema and and, and and Manchin, and and you would do things by governing to the middle. And maybe you wouldn't have these huge consequential, um, you know, legisl- legislative accomplishments that I don't think were ever really that achievable. But you could build back better. You might actually be able to win a seat or two in the Senate, given how far to the right the Republican Party is going, right? You could actually maybe hold on to the, I mean, I, I think it's probably unlikely, but they, they, they actually could have made gains if the Republican Party you know, didn't reform itself, and you're the one governing as the adult in the room and the moderate who's appealing to the mainstream elements in both parties. Uh, but he went the other direction. He went to the left, um, as, as I've documented and talked about quite a bit, and that had political consequences. You're paying a big political cost for that.
0: Okay, let me push back on you a little bit um, with, with the caveat that I agree with you um, and believed all the things that you just said as well. I mean, um, I actually was also uh, believing that part of the mandate was to be boring and to be centrist. I wonder now, and again, ha- having accepted everything you're saying about uh, you know the, the, the center and moving left, whether or not you know our our political culture has changed to the point where you no longer have the luxury of being boring. Because one of the things that strikes me is that. Maybe we got or at least I'm thinking about is is that maybe we got addicted to, um, you know, Donald Trump being a presence so that Biden does not seem to have the there seems to be an absence is what I'm getting at, that 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 he doesn't have the presence, um, the leadership, the sense of strength that you would want at a particular moment. I remember saying, and we, you and I probably had the conversation. I'm looking forward to a time when, when we go days at a time without talking about the president, when um, the president does not dominate the news cycle. Well, the problem is that every once in a while we need the president to dominate the news cycle. We need to have the president providing that kind of presidential leadership, uh, to, you know, to be the Churchill or the FDR, you know, in, in times of crisis, and he's not there. And so, uh, you know, his failure to use the bully pulpit maybe in reaction in part to the overuse of it by, uh, to Donald Trump, I think makes him feel like a diminished president, if you know what I mean. Now there are other issues as well, you know, including, yeah. including yeah. his age, which I, I think we'd have to be in serious denial not to see that as a, as a factor, but I wonder whether the modern president can't afford to be boring and, and absent any longer.
1: It's a great point, Charlie. And, you know, I think the problem, though, was that Biden didn't understand his own limitations. Yeah. He, you're right. You've got to understand who you are and what, you, what your strengths are and play to those yeah. strengths. He saw himself for a moment as FDR and LBJ, even though he did not share their rhetorical gifts. <laughs> he didn't have the political capital in Congress. Uh, he, he didn't have the momentum behind their their victories. And yet he kind of envisioned himself in that same light. When he's really, he's Jerry Ford, right? He's a transitional <laughs> president who's right, not, yeah. I mean, we'll see if he runs again. Uh, he knew in 2024. that. He, he
0: knew that in the campaign and then he forgot that when he got into office, right? Right. Yeah. You
1: know. And I, I think good governance, good politics is all about knowing your strengths and knowing your weaknesses so you can kind of play to your strengths and downplay those weaknesses. And he did not follow any of that playbook. He literally got you know got eyes too big for for his the realities in Washington. and um you know, again, I, I think that's what what did him in. I think he could have been a perfectly successful president. He could have been talked about in the history books as the guy who turned down the temperature um from the crazy Trump years. And yeah, I think he accomplished some of that. I mean, there there's clearly uh, a, a certain decorum that was absent for four years during Trump's presidency. But you know, Ford—one of the most uh, famous uh, things Ford did, Gerald Ford did in his presidency—was pardon Richard Nixon and, and almost take take that off the table and literally try to you know cool down the temperature by actively avoiding alienating the the the, the reasonable parts of the opposition. Biden didn't really do that. I mean, he he he, he literally went as far as he could go with his legislative agenda uh, to the point where he really alienated a lot of Republicans. But the small handful, perhaps, of of folks still in the in in the moderate wing of the party that were willing to do business with him and actually did vote by the way they did support his the one thing he did do that was a bipartisan initiative was the infrastructure bill and he got 19 republicans uh to sign up for that so that that was a hint of what could have been if if he took a different direction um in his presidency but yeah too often pandered to the left
0: this this all seems so obvious in retrospect i mean the two great sins of of a party that comes into power is overreaching and over promising. So, if you overreach, you push things too far. You uh, you generate a backlash. But also, if you overpromise and then underdeliver, you uh, run the risk of disillusioning your own base and creating sort of this this outright you know this outrage that uh, that that you have been betrayed um, and or indifference about uh, turning out. And I think you did that. And again, when you look back in in, in retrospect, it, he comes in and you have a tied United States Senate and what a five vote margin in the House of Representatives. Um, almost the definition of self-delusion to think that with those margins, you were going to be able to be the next FDR LBJ. And I, you know, I would like to go back and say, you know, how, how many people in, you know, in the democratic party raised that, 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 you know, red flag saying, guys, um, you, this is, this is dangerous uh, that you are over promising that you are pushing this too far. Um, uh, you, You have made this dramatic pivot from the way you ran to the way you're governing based on a virtually non-existent majority. And I think we're seeing how that's played out. Yeah, it's a rough time
1: for uh, Democrats who I think uh, we've talked about this too on this podcast, Charlie, but they are the more sane party. They have more moderate voters in their party. They're not uh, the voters in the Democratic Party are not beholden to a cult of personality like the Republicans. So it's, like I said, as a political analyst watching, you know, how these different parties are acting, I, I've never seen so much self-inflicted damage for a party that had a lot of political strengths and advantages going into this midterm election. I, it really is, um, you know, Republicans, in a way, like they, 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 their problem is their voters, right? They, they are beholden to a party that, as you've noted, 70% think Trump is the greatest thing ever. Democrats have yeah. about half half their party, half their voters identify as moderates, tend to be more pragmatic, agree with a lot of the positions you've been talking about, Charlie. But their donors, their activists, a lot of maybe even some younger staff are pushing them in a very, uh, you know, problematic direction politically. And and it's it's. You know, well, watching it in and, real time been pretty remarkable.
0: Right. So, and I mean, you know, there are, you know, a couple of, you know, big question marks about this election, including whether or not the Republican crazy at some w- you know, at some point is gonna come back and bite them in in the ass, you know, that they are overreaching as as well, that they are so confident of victory that they're gonna tolerate the Marjorie Taylor Greens, um, you know, the the various seditionists, who knows what's gonna come out about January sixth, which I don't think is going to be as as decisive as Democrats would hope. What about, what about, um, and we talked about this previously on the podcast though, uh, Roe versus Wade. If the Supreme Court were to overturn Roe versus Wade, is that anything close to a game changer or does that does change the dynamics of uh, of the midterm elections? Do you think?
1: I think it does a little bit for, and it benefits Democrats uh, just in terms of getting that engagement to the point where they need it for the midterms. I, I don't think it's going to be changing the ultimate dynamic of, of the midterms, but uh, there, there was a poll that, uh, or it was an aggregation of polls that NBC News just put out uh, this week showing that uh, in the last 12 years, that Republicans um, lost college-educated women yes. by 10 points in 2010. They're now, even in this great environment for Republicans, they're losing college-educated women by 38 points. I mean, that that is where Amazing. the abortion issue comes into play. That is where you're going to get more engagement if, if, if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe v. Wade. Again, I don't think it's going to, that's a lot of that's baked in the cake already. I don't think it's going to dramatically change the trajectory of the midterms, but if it helps stem the losses, uh, and I think it will on the margins, that would be a benefit for Democrats.
0: Josh Kraschauer, it is so good to have you back on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Charlie josh is senior national political columnist at the national journal and he writes the weekly against the grain column um and has been a frequent guest on this podcast we'll have you back uh, throughout the the year the bulwark podcast is produced by katie cooper with audio production by jonathan siri i'm charlie sykes thank you for listening to today's bulwark podcast and we'll be back tomorrow do this all over again